Welcome to another Psych Matters podcast from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. Psych Matters is a series of discussions on training and practice issues facing trainees and fellows of the college and other important topics in mental health. This episode is the first in a series of two and is an introduction to Lachlan Sayer and his experiences living with intellectual disability and explores the effective communication strategies psychiatrists could use with their patients. We acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the First Nations and the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waters known as Australia and Māori as Tangata Whenua in Aotearoa. We honour and respect the Elders past and present who weave their wisdom into all realms of life. Hey Lockie, I thought we might introduce ourselves, we're both new guests on the Psych Matters podcast and we're going to be talking about um, intellectual disability a little bit today and maybe broadening out to a lot of related topics from there. To begin with, I'll introduce myself. So my name is Dr. Dan Mermelstein. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatry advanced trainee, a few weeks away from finishing and, and getting my letters, which is an exciting time. Also dad to two young kids and partner to my lovely wife and big superhero fan, Lego enthusiast, avid meditator. So that's a little bit about me. Uh, Lockie, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, my name's Lachlan Sayer. I am by no means a medical professional. (laughs) I am um, an opinionated teenager who was born with uh, cerebral palsy and epilepsy. I was diagnosed at nine months old. And I have grown up in the world of special needs, gone through diversity, gone through experiences that have shaped me as a human being. But I've also seen the effects of different topics on my other friends who have special needs. Many are intellectually disabled. As far as my hobbies go, I'm an avid swimmer, Lego enthusiast, (laughs) and mixology, so I like making cocktails, but <laughs> that's a little bit about me. Very good. Well, uh, we're both so glad to, to be here, and, and it's a real pleasure to have you here on the podcast, Lucky, to talk all things disability, and, and, and really, hopefully by the end of the podcast, give people a bit of an insight into that lived experience, and into the ways in which, particularly I suppose, psychiatrists and psychiatry trainees uh, like myself might be able to to think about working with people um, with those kinds of challenges um, and also respecting the the diversity of all of those challenges. So um, whilst we might be talking a bit about your lived experience, we might be talking about some different people that we have both engaged with, we also acknowledge the fact that it's such a spectrum of what people have to deal with. Dealing with each person as an individual becomes the most important thing. Um, but hopefully there'll be some common themes that we can kind of explore and we're helpful for people. Maybe it would be great just to start with, Lockie, your current kind of like professional process, the stuff that you're working on at the moment. So I want to say about three years ago, I was approached by one of my doctors who I've known my entire life from birth. He wanted to, knowing that I'm chatty person with lots of opinions. He wanted to bring me on to a webinar he was doing. And I met lots of great people during that. And that was all about what it was like to transition from pediatric care to adult care. And uh, it's been on a 
pretty linear path since then. I know that I enjoy doing this stuff. And currently, I'm obviously here with you today, but I have been working with CP Achieve through the Murdoch Institute for Cerebral Palsy Support. That's actually at the Royal Children's Hospital. And then just recently, Melbourne Uni are starting a course next year on the exact topic that we're discussing today about how doctors can better communicate with people that are neurodiverse or sometimes even just shy and how doctors can have a more effective relationship for the best outcome of the patient. Wonderful, wonderful. And I suppose we've been talking about this in the lead up to the podcast. One might imagine that psychiatrists would be the exemplars of this ability to connect and communicate with, you know, their patients. But, you know, you've had a very different experience, actually. And, you know, a lot of people have had a very different experience of that. So I'm wondering if you could start to tell us a little bit about what are some of the good, the bad and the ugly of these kinds of experiences? I think with psychiatry, the career that you guys get most compared to, and I don't think it's entirely fair because you do very different roles, but that is psychologists. But to just compare for a second, I find that a psychiatrist lacks that, and not all, obviously, a wrench in a room with you, but I find that psychiatrists in lots of experiences including my own actually yesterday when I had my psychiatry appointment, I'll get into that in a second, struggle to exempt the same social interaction skills and sometimes effective dialect with patients compared to a psychologist who is really good at those communication skills, really good at comfortability levels, making the room a safe environment for myself. And so yesterday I had the first time meeting a psychiatrist that I had been waiting for months because I'd obviously been on the list and it's a long waiting list at the moment. And I finally got to see him and it was an awful experience. I chose to listen to him and his professional opinion with great interest and obviously respected what his beliefs were and everything like that because I wanted to know what was I was feeling and what was going on with me. But I found that within my experience that it was a very tense environment. I mentioned to you prior to the podcast that my mum had the door slammed in her face because naturally during an interview process, other individuals wouldn't want to be in the room in case it created bias when it discussions, but that was not communicated. It was literally a door slammed in the face. And the way that made me feel as an individual was that my circle wasn't welcome into the room, therefore I wasn't welcome into the room. And I feel as though people who are neurodiverse, I know people that are neurodiverse, would probably agree with me in the fact that they would shut down I would shut down, but me being stubborn after being on that waiting list still went into that interview, but I know that it was not a safe experience. And I think safety is that important word. Yeah, safety, safety and that comfort and connection. And so to kind of contextualise how you described to me is you and your mum had gone to this psychiatrist to get their opinion. Your mum had kind of asked, would you like me to come in with you? And you'd 
sort of said yes. And then as you're entering the room, the psychiatrist sort of instructs mum backwards and says, that's not how we do things and kind of close the door on her without asking you what you wanted, for example. What followed that, and I didn't tell you this bit, was that he came and sat down in front of me and I'm like, I apologise for that. We didn't know the process. Because I was trying to, frankly, diffuse the situation and see if something had just been wrong and we could start over. So he sits down and I say to him, yeah, I'm sorry about that. We were unaware of the process. I completely understand But instead of exactly hearing me out, which is interesting that you mentioned in the other room that psychiatrists have some struggles sometimes listening in the sense that I said all those things to him and his following question was, oh, well, do you want your mum in here? And instead of waiting for my response, he went back out to explain to my mum why she couldn't come in. And I could hear him not yelling, but I could hear him being loud in the other room explaining these things to her. Now, obviously that could be because of hard of hearing or anything. I'm not saying it was an aggressive or assertive tone, but he didn't wait for my response. And then he came running back in the room and goes, well, she understands now. She she understood why I didn't want her in the room during the interview process. And I'm like, okay, great all right, I guess let's just get on with this so I can get out of here. Yeah, and, like, I I mean, obviously this is one episode of one interaction that you've had with one particular psychiatrist, and yet it illustrates, I think, so much about probably what we want to be reflecting on as a profession and as individual clinicians in terms of the many layers of stress and difficulty that lead up to somebody walking into our room, right? And even just like the power dynamic of it, like you kind of said, like there's there's some element of this where you had to kind of try and oblige this person and had to placate them and diffuse things because potentially there was a lot of power or weight or authority there, which you're hoping to benefit from in terms of the expertise, but at the same time makes it really hard to maybe be able to be authentic? I think a good way of describing it is that in my opinion, and obviously my support system, and in this case, my mum's opinion, was that walking into that room was about me and about how I felt. But I think the feeling I got and almost like, it's slang, but vibe of the room was that the psychiatrist in question felt as this was his space, this was how he felt, And I was here to be medically and I think most importantly clinically assessed for my own struggles, which as far as his feedback at the end goes, it was incredibly helpful to know and understand and have a better idea of who I am. But this was his space and he didn't want my mum in there. And frankly, it felt a little as though he didn't want me in there, but (laughs) I was just his one (laughs) o'clock. And especially, you know, we've spoken about this, like your mum is this like really close, important person in your life. And the idea of like her not being welcome automatically is going to have this kind of sense of you not being welcome on some level. And yeah, maybe maybe it's worth us thinking about what is it about that difference between like a clinical interaction, which can be really unhelpful. You know, I spoke in the past before the potty as well about this idea that like sometimes doctors in general can be too clinical, right? And that's kind of 
it'd be interesting to explore what, what does that mean to you, like being too clinical, and what would be the alternative? What would you love to see each doctor kind of do, each psychiatrist? Well, I, I, think, I think as a patient, it is important for me to remember that a psychiatrist is my clinical doctor, whereas my psychologist is my therapeutical doctor. But I think that there needs to be a, a balance. Obviously, I go into these sessions, and we discussed this um, prior, but I, we go into these sessions with these expectations that there are conversations, there are parts to this process that aren't going to be comfortable and aren't going to be favourable. And even though I go into that session knowing that these are conversations that I would not have on a day-to-day basis, but will have for this one appointment that I have been waiting eight months for a, a session. There's an understanding and a respect for that, but at the same time, I would be far more open if it was an environment I felt safe in, I felt respected in, and to an extent, someone was concerned because the, in in my personal case, and I won't get into all the details now, but I have had a troubled childhood and for that reason, I have been concerned about how my childhood has affected my adolescence and into adulthood. And so when I walk into this session, I expect that he wants to help. He doesn't want to microanalyze me and decide on my conditions and everything, but he wants to help. And I think what's important to remember is that I am a upfront person who's very honest and very open-minded, but I know a lot of my friends who have seen psychiatrists, and particularly after COVID, so many people are requiring this sort of medical support that this experience isn't a one-off. But not to toot my own horn, my friends are the same open book as I am. And I have felt quite concerned and worried for them, particularly a couple of my friends who are neurodivergent. And that makes it any social situation incredibly difficult for them, never mind with a stranger who is going to talk about their deepest, darkest insecurities. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, it is. It's a really big deal. Um, And there's a real kind of privilege in that as well, which perhaps, you know, to some extent for psychiatrists, for other mental health clinicians, when we're having these conversations over and over and over and over again, it's very easy to forget how profound they are because the person we're talking to is having them for the first time sometimes or in a very rare kind of way. And I think the other thing you kind of said about this experience you had was that after you did get that feedback from the psychiatrist, your mum kind of participated in that as well and she was obviously not happy and she sort of didn't really want to listen to that opinion, didn't really feel like that opinion was valid at that point. So at the point that the interview had finished and we were entering the diagnosis 
section of the interview. He asked that after the whole debacle at the start of the session, would you like your mum to come in for the diagnosis part? And I can also explain to you both these conditions and I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And so we, we enter that appointment and my mum comes in and we're sitting there. Now he explains it in great detail and I will mention something in a second about what he said that's quite interesting. But from my mum's perspective, she sat there listening. She heard him out. But then he read the room and he goes, Julie, you seem quite uncomfortable. Is everything okay? And she went off at him. And she felt, I mean, to be fair, it was my session, not hers, but she felt uncomfortable. She felt as if it was unprofessional. And when we left that appointment and I went and had a coffee with her after, she made the comment to me that as far as she was concerned, she was not willing to take anything that psychiatrist said on board and made her feel kind of just upset. Right. And I think there's something so crucial about thinking about what that means, this idea that we have people coming to our room and we don't really know their whole story, right? And we're attempting sometimes in a very short space of time to come up with a sense of something that can't possibly be understood in that short space of time. And maybe people have been through like all sorts of difficult experiences where they are going to be really sensitive to certain things that we are going to do or say or if somebody does have some particular social communication difficulties, it's gonna, they're going to find it hard, let's say, to understand certain ways of communicating. So this idea of, like, what does it look like to have an open and safe space where people can come as they are and they can be open and honest? And, and the reason for that at the end of the day is not just because we want people to feel good, because we do, but at the end of the day, the reason as clinicians that it's so important for us to get this right is because we then actually can understand someone and have enough trust from them that whatever we say will be listened to, right? It's like we're undermining the whole process, even if we want to keep it to something a bit more clinical, right, and less therapist or therapeutic, which I actually think it's unfortunate that you've had that experience. You've had so many psychiatrists who've had this kind of clinical engagement because I do think that we can be therapeutic and helpful even if we're not therapists, right? Like we don't have to be a, a patient's therapist. We don't have to be working with someone as a therapist and it could still be really helpful. Well, yeah, and, and I'll jump in there. Firstly, I'd like to say like there's no right answer about how you approach a situation, but I will just jump back to my story. One thing that he said that was interesting was – not to use his own words against him, but he made the comment to my mum when describing how she's had experiences as a lawyer with people that have borderline personality disorder in a more domestic violence household. Now, that was my childhood, but at that point I was a kid. But, like, with her experiences, people that have these conditions are very different to the kind of person I am. And so this psychiatrist was explaining to her that it's important to remember that whilst I share the traits with these people and therefore fit the box of borderline personality disorder, I have a very different personality. And that's a really good, again, not to use his own words against him, but that is so important to remember. I can sit here and say how every psychiatrist can make me feel comfortable and my own boundaries, my own box, as I'd like to say, 
And I can preach on this potty for ages about that. But I have a very different personality to other people. And I think what you and I discussed that kind of comes back to that is that, number one, it's about reading a room, right? Obviously, understanding what the person is feeling, whether they feel uncomfortable, tense. Like in the appointment, he goes, you seem like a very shy person. I'm anything but shy, but I was very uncomfortable by this point. And I think it's important to remember that each person's different. Each person has their own comfortability level. Neurodiverse people are going to be far tighter than I am, for example. But it's about... Like their, their window yeah, of their tolerance. Yeah, win- their window of tolerance is going to be a much smaller box. And if you push to the wrong pressure point, that's not going to be even available to you, even that small window. So it's important to facilitate this experience. And because I think I said to you earlier, you're going to get the most out of a patient if they feel comfortable. I mean, I'm not saying everyone's that way, but I'm saying that a lot of people will, with that expectation that you go into these sessions talking about uncomfortable things, it'll pour out like a waterfall. But, you know, if you don't make that person feel uncomfortable, you're getting a few drops of rain. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, you and I spoke about this at like, Sometimes you need to have a rectal exam, let's say, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you've <laughs> yes. made an appointment with the GP and you know you're having the kind of problem where that might be necessary or maybe they tell you that that's going to be necessary. Like within the frame of that experience, we can engage in a lot of very strange and uncomfortable things like that and it can be okay. It can be safe and it can be comfortable and it can be necessary. And I think with some of this kind of like emotional psychological pain that we might be experiencing, yeah, what it actually looks like. Let's talk a little bit about some of those strategies that you, you know, are looking to encourage generally people to engage in to build that kind of safety. And if you're thinking about people with neurodiverse backgrounds or intellectual disability, some of the people you've kind of engaged with and supported over over the years, you know, what, what do you think are some of those strategies that come to your mind of how to build that safety and trust? Yeah, I I think that, like, I'll use the example of my brother. Um, He's ASD, ADHD, and dyslexia. Someone called it a triangle. (laughs) A psychiatrist said that he's got the triangle. And he is not somebody who's going to walk into a room and say, I'm uncomfortable. And it doesn't take someone who knows him really well to pick up on the physical cues that he exhibits for when he feels uncomfortable. He's a fiddler. He won't talk quite often than not. If he has his AirPods with him, they're going right in. And it's a level of being able to read somebody's physical stature to understand how they are feeling. The psychiatrist, in my experience, made the comment that my cheeks looked really blushed, and therefore he believed I was fighting hard to put on a to exhibit myself and to, I was working hard to kind of show myself off for the psychiatrist so he got a better picture. And to an extent that might be true, but I think what's important to remember is that means he was looking, that means he was analysing my physical traits, but it's a level of not looking at that from a perspective of clinical, but maybe looking at that as a level of 
personal social intelligence. And you and I talked about how more often than not, everyone has these social skills. Some better than others, but for the most part, we all have social skills. And as we are really social creatures. And so I think the problem is all of these psychiatrists in this instance, but all the entire medical world teaches everything, they're leaving these social skills at home or maybe they're leaving them in their office with their colleagues. But when they enter this clinical room, it becomes black and white. It becomes a bit harder conversations, a bit more, I say carefree because, you know, you have a set process and everything. I was in like lacking care, yeah. lacking something of care. Yeah. 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 So I think we did speak at this idea. It's like there's something common sense about these ideas, right? And when we, I think working with a lot of children with different kinds of disabilities, different kinds of neurodevelopmental profiles, clearly for me, that attention to nonverbal communication, how someone's coming into the room, becomes really important. And because I think sometimes we also use a lot of language, you know, like we're a very talk-based profession. And so things like sensory items, sensory avenues for dealing with restlessness or fidgeting, visual approaches to information, you know, a shout out to, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dr. Dita Kimba, but she's developed this whole Tracking Better program, which is like a visual-based way to assess and communicate information, which is like specifically designed, you know, with OTs to be appropriate for different kinds of young people and their families. Because yeah, if we just talking, 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 which is obviously ironic because we're on a podcast talking, that may just be very hard for people to understand. Like if people don't have the same language skills or if they don't have that same intellectual and neurodevelopmental profile, it can be very, very hard to understand. And so when someone comes in uncomfortable, we can very quickly make it worse. I I would love to throw in a little friend I have. So I met this person through my local gym and He is, I think, 14 now, and he's homeschooled and everything. And the reason he's homeschooled is because as obviously younger, he he dealt with some, you know, aggression and things like that. But I think I would really like to talk about his condition that I found fascinating and frankly had never heard of before. His mum calls it select mutism. Unfortunately, this boy has never said a word to anyone outside of his home. And it's a level of that home is his comfortability space. And so he can talk to people in there, struggles a lot with strangers, but he does talk to people in this environment. And he is incapable of doing that outside of his home, but also outside of his home is a psychiatrist's office. And with all these neurodiverse conditions that he unfortunately has to live with, he does need to go to a psychiatrist's office, but he's not talking. And if you kick the mum out of the room, you're not going to have any conversation with him whatsoever and you're not going to find out any form of information. So it's really important for everyone, not just our psychiatrists, to learn more appropriate skills of reading physical and sensory information rather than 
Yeah, that's a very good example. I mean, you have you have someone with selective mutism, you have someone with a non-verbal ASD, you have someone with like severe language disorder. Like there are lots of times in which talking is just not going to get us as far. And the reality is like we are non-verbal and emotional creatures, right? So like for any of us, music and art and smells and tastes and like all of this stuff is a rich part of our experience and can be an important way in, right? An important way in to connect and understand. I hope that you're enjoying this podcast. If you have a topic suggestion or would like to participate in a future episode of Psych Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by email at psychmatters.feedback at ranzcp.org. And this kind of brings up the subject, what are these barriers? I mean, I'd love to hear a bit more from you about what you feel are some of the barriers to people maybe with ID or neurodevelopmentally different profiles like what are some of those barriers to accessing good quality care do you think there's a level of diversity and discrimination but i don't think that's from an individual in a profession like psychiatry it's not an individual's difficulty with talking to someone who's like stigma yeah. and and active yeah, sort I, of I don't think ableism. It's, a, it's, a, it's a psychiatrist a psychiatrist based of ableism but i think that you know, it is incredibly hard for neurodiverse people to seek out this care, number one, alone, but number two, efficiently. I mean, before any, like I said, psychiatrists I don't think have opinion-based or at least sub, like no conscious opinion-based ableism. But a GP, like, they might struggle to communicate with somebody and then they're sending them off to something rather than a psychiatrist, which is where they need to be. And there's that step before that struggles with. A neurodiverse person then ends up in your clinic and you're going to still struggle with the same issues of there's, it's not a level of uncomfortability, but it's a level of being open. I have quite a few friends through my swimming career who have Down syndrome. And they are the funniest people I know. Like, that's just their personality. That's not because they're downs, but yeah, they are hilarious. But I watch people from other swimming clubs that don't know them actively avoid a social interaction, but sometimes just walking past them. And it's not that these people are directly ableist or scared or anything like that. It's that people don't understand how to communicate, either non-verbally or patiently or open-minded, you know, thinking before you speak and things like that. Now, obviously, quite often a neurodiverse condition will be compared to what level age of intellect that they have you might consider it like oh this person has the neural capacity of a four-year-old and sometimes that can be really hard but I guarantee you in your life you've met a four-year-old and it's about using those skills universally yeah which is like it's interesting isn't it because there's, there's a an element of people's 
lack of experience with people who might be a bit different in some way, shape or form can bring in this kind of anxiety that then means they forget like the basics of just like just interacting with someone like a person. And then when we pick up on the fact that maybe there's something that they're particularly struggling with or struggling to follow, like kind of continuing to try and meet them at their level, you know, there's a an element of like kind of play about it, which as you said, like, you know, to be able to connect with a two or three or four or five or six or seven-year-old, it's play-based, right? Like we don't talk to a four-year-old about their feelings. Or in this case, humour-based. Yeah, humour-based, yeah, something yeah. lighter and just real and, and authentic. And I think that that is a really important reminder to stick to some of those basics. But there's clearly a lot of barriers, right? And it sounds to me like... I, sorry to interrupt. I, I understand that a lot of people will have little experience with areas of, say, I'm choosing to study as a primary school teacher at the moment because I'm good with kids. But I'm choosing primary school because I'm frankly just going to crack it at any year 12 <laughs> doing the wrong thing. And so that's where I have strengths and I have weaknesses. So I understand that some people in a social context have strengths talking to kids. Some people have strengths talking to neurodiverse people. Everyone's different. And so that's why And you and I were talking about just before the podcast about training. And I think that there should be a level of training in all medical school, come to Melbourne Uni, um, but there should be a level of all universally medically teaching, sometimes even maybe a lawyer, has exposure in a work experience environment with non-typical people. But there is so many people in the world and there needs to be a training protocol where you are meeting people from all different backgrounds, ability, diversity, and to learn. Because if you haven't experienced what it's like to have a neurodiverse friend growing up, and I think a big part about it is that people who get into psychiatry are very intelligent. They get into this course because they're quite smart. Hopefully. Unf yeah, hopefully. Yeah, you, you'd, you'd want to hope so. But I think that in a school environment, they're in an environment with other intellects. There's not necessarily going to be many Down syndrome people in a school like that. So they're not getting that exposure. So you have to force an environment where there is that exposure because it's the only way you're going to learn. Yeah, experiential learning in this area is so important, isn't it? Yeah, like we can learn all the stats, we can learn about all the barriers theoretically, you know, we can understand all the complexity, but when it comes to actually getting comfortable and helping, because it's sort of like until we're comfortable, it's very hard to make someone else feel comfortable, isn't it? That's a good point. Right? Yeah. And so if we haven't been through that process of learning and being supported to understand what's going on and how to best engage, then we're going to come to each of those next interactions with this anxiety and discomfort and then it's like straight away, you know, people who are hypersensitive to that stuff especially are going to find a, it hard. It's a level of confidence-based. Basically, like, yeah. If you know that you're going to be better with teenage girl versus a 45-year-old man in a review process. And now I get there's obviously divides and everything there, but you are going to be more equipped for that and you're going to feel more confident. 
And I think that neurodiversity, I mean, it's become, it's on the rise, obviously, more and more people these days are being diagnosed as it should be, but it's still not as common as all sorts of different sexualities and things like that. It's not. And so exposure is going to be more rare. But yeah, like you were saying, it's that experimental exposure where you learn to build confidences. It's not any prejudice or bias. It's a level of feeling confident when talking to somebody. Yeah, yeah, that becomes so important. And I suppose, you know, just to briefly talk about that intersection between intellectual disability specifically, but then a lot of that whole spectrum of of neurodevelopmental diversity, the intersection between that and mental health issues. You know, you mentioned your own borderline personality disorder diagnosis with the cerebral palsy and a whole bunch of other experiences you've had. Mental health is something I've struggled with my entire life. I feel as though I'm stronger because of it, more confident because of it and everything. But the moment somebody touches those dots of what made me strong to begin with, I have my own negative responses of dealing with them. Sometimes self-deprecating, sometimes aggression. Like, And that's where the borderline personality disorder came from, where they that's how they diagnosed it, just these level of experiences. But at the same time, I don't have a neurological disability. I have a mental health disorder, but I don't have a neurological disability. I have quite the list of physical disabilities, which I find myself incredibly lucky and why I feel as though I feel confident to come on this podcast and speak is because I feel as though I have a level of understanding, but still an ability to vocalise those understandings. But I still feel quite a lot of pressure on my mental health and it, it is a level of natural at my age going through, like, I'm 19 right now, going through that process in my life, just left school, going to uni. But it's still, you know, normal, but within a range where you can manage it. And that's why I go to see psychiatrists. That's why I see my psychologist, who is incredible. I see her every Friday. And she's really helped me understand. I mean, the only reason I ended up in psychology to begin with was because I was trying to get a friend to go and me and the friend agreed that if she was going to go, I was going to go. Nice, nice. So that's how we both forced each other into psychology, but it's made a world of difference. And my psychologist said a couple about a year ago, she's like, maybe it's time we see a psychiatrist. And that's the avenue that I led to there. And then to be honest, I was let down. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite experience. the experience you would have hoped for. And yeah, look, I mean, I think more broadly, my sense is there's two elements to this that are important to take into account. One is that people with intellectual disabilities and neurodiversity, physical disabilities as well, will have much higher rates of various kinds of mental health issues for a variety of reasons. You know, there's going to be all sorts of things and experiences that they're going to be maybe more vulnerable to that might happen. And that also there's going to be ways in which just 
the regular world, like you said, is really stressful. Yeah, well then, yeah, let's let's explain what the plane is. So three weeks ago, I was on my way to London. I don't know if many people have heard about this because it was reported a lot on in Britain, but not in Australia. I was in a plane that, due to heavy turbulence, fell a thousand feet out of the sky. And that was quite stressful. Uh, my parents were waiting for me and my brother in London because they had been on a business trip. And we were on our way there in high spirits when, yeah, this plane went down and I've got people screaming all around me. Um, five unfortunate cabin crew members were injured because they didn't get to buckle up quick enough. And it was, it was horrible. And it's not the worst thing that's ever happened to me, but it's definitely the scariest, the most adrenaline pumping thing that's ever happened to me. But I think once we look at it, it was just me and my brother. And my ways of dealing with it was I did not stop to think about it until I got back to Australia. I powered through. We got back to Singapore because we had to turn the plane around and we had to wait on that plane for hours while they treated the injured and everything. And then we finally got some complimentary hotels in the Singapore like city centre. And so, yeah, my thing was I was immediately on the phones trying to find other possibilities and other flights to get me to England. Now, I, I won't go into it too much, but, like, we also ran into the trouble of British Airways were claiming there was no availability for another four days, and they were very unhelpful. The cabin crew and the pilot was incredible, but they were very unhelpful, and that added another level of stress. So while I'm doing this and trying to find flights and trying to manage my mum who thought her kids were dead and trying to decompose myself and get me and my brother to England, I have my little brother with me. And he, as I mentioned before, has the triangle. And his way of dealing with it was, oh, yeah, we were fine. Oh, we're alive. Oh, that's fine. Like, avoiding the topic at all costs. Being very dismissive, very, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And shutting down. Also very clingy, though. He was very tactile for the next few days, very touchy, very huggy. He's 15 and he was holding my hand through an airport. Like, it's that level of how he managed it. As a family, we know that a big part of his response is because of his diversity. And whilst I'm not saying he would have managed it the same way as me if he was neurotypical... His response to that event was due to his conditions. Yeah, and it's a really nice example of that, is that like each person, based on what our particular personality and experiences and, you know, neurodevelopmental profile is, we're going to experience things very differently. We're going to react very differently. So we've got these really high rates then of people who have some of these other challenges in life because of that, it seems like they have a bunch of experiences that are all that much more challenging um, and that, you know, leads to more anxiety. Because if I am very sensory sensitive or if I, you know, do find just regular social interaction really stressful, I'm going to develop more anxiety. I'm going to develop more depression. So we see a lot of that my, coming. My little brother, he thrived during COVID. Online learning was so hard for so many people, including yeah. myself, but he thought it was the greatest thing on earth. 
he got to hide in his room all day every day and when he finished school, the first thing he'd do would be get on his video games and play solo games he was on his own. He thought it was the greatest thing. And the transition out of that first lockdown was very hard because that was almost 18 weeks, that first one. That transition out of that lockdown, like me, I, I hadn't seen my longtime girlfriend at the time and I was freaking out about that. I hadn't seen any friends. I mean, I, I hadn't had a haircut. We all know the story. We've all been through that. But for him, he thought, oh, no, going back to life. And that was incredibly daunting and scary. And I know everyone felt a degree of that. I know my mum was very germophobic for the next few months and or next year, frankly. But he was, I don't, I don't know what you'd call it, but afraid of social situations. Yeah. Well, it's that social anxiety, which is kind of almost inherent to having autism in some sense. But as you said, the... Yeah, COVID, I think a lot of people had that experience, a lot of, certainly I saw that in the service that I was working, there was a lot of young people and kids coming back from lockdown and it was the coming back that was the really stressful bit because it had all of a sudden their world had actually become like a lot more conducive to their needs in some sense, whereas the, 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 the typical world is not so. Yeah, I like, I left that locked, uh, like one of the lockdowns, I think it was the one just before Christmas in 2020, frankly, with a strut in my stride, singing, I will walk 5,000 miles. <laughs> but I went out for dinner with my parents and they, they were like, we walked past Fed Square, but we had to go around Fed Square because it was busy. It was Christmas time, so it can make sense. And they're just like, we need to get away from this. And yeah, it's, yeah, it was full on for, for a lot of people, wasn't oh, it? There was course, this kind of yeah. global experience, very intense emotional experience. The, the other thing I want to ask you about, Lucky, as well, is the risk also of only attributing certain difficulties or problems to a disability or to a particular diagnosis. So that you know, on the one hand, we want to be taking these things into account really thoughtfully and th engaging with them. On the other hand, sometimes say, oh, yeah, they just have ID, you know, or it's just their autism and ignoring, like you kind of said, well, any 19-year-old has, like, 25 different problems that might make them stressed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So can you talk a bit about that, like that sense of, like, maybe that reductionism, that, that kind of real simplifying of people's problems just to one thing? Yeah, I think that, obviously, you're not my therapist if you're my psychiatrist, so that's important to remember on the other end of the spectrum. But I think that you, you make a good point. You, your opinion can become almost biased when looking at somebody, if you form too much of an attachment with them and you care for these people and you don't want them to have the scary names and scary conditions and things like that, which, yeah, you can kind of be a bit... My psychologist said to me, I think you might have borderline personality disorder. Yeah. That's a potential. And then she put that in her referral to the psychiatrist and then the psychiatrist said, I agree with your psychologist's opinion. And I, I worried to myself, I'm like, did he read that referral before I walked in there and did he then have an expectation to find the traits that make up borderline personality disorder or did he look at it objectively? And I think it's the same sort of thing where if you go too far with the social aspects, does your opinion become less objective and more subjective. Yeah, that's interesting. So so we want to kind of this nice distance 
there's an appropriate distance. If we're too far away from the person that we're trying to understand and connect with, it comes across as like, you know, disinterested and we can't really connect and it's not meaningful. If we're kind of too close, right, if we're too close and all we can kind of be is feeling with them what they're feeling and we can't kind of sit back and think, well, how does this all actually come together? We also become a bit less useful. If I look at my brother, obviously he has these conditions. If, as a psychiatrist, you want to better understand them and analyse them, you also need to remember that you need to take the necessary precautions that anybody in somebody's life with the triangle needs to take into consideration. Because you're not only trying to pinpoint these conditions, you also need to remember you're dealing with these conditions. So you need to deal with them in an appropriate way. So yeah, it's all about creating that balance between your clinical work and your, obviously, personal opinion and friendship and things like that. Yeah. Well, look, there's so many things to talk about with this topic and others. Do you have any final thoughts around this topic of the role of the psychiatrist in dealing with people with different kinds of disabilities and needs? I think it's just a level of, if I had to say it in a few words, like we mentioned already, it's just we're all better at things than others and we all have our strengths, but it's just a level of common sense and social communication skills that some worse than others we all have. It's about taking that to your workplace as well particularly in a profession like psychiatry, but also like teaching, a GP. We've gone into psychiatry today, but I've got my fair few stories when it comes to orthopedic surgeons. But yeah, it's just about we're all people, we're all social creatures. Because you don't have a social relationship with them doesn't mean you can't interact with them, connect with them. Yeah, I think I've taken away a lot from this idea of making sure that we see a person first, we understand each person that we see as an individual and we do what we can to create a sense of safety and a sense of connection and a sense of trust and then from there we can actually start to kind of explore and understand the bit of the expertise that we have. I think a person is struggling with something. That's why they come to see psychiatrists. It's not the brain has something wrong with it. It's there is a person struggling with something. And it's that. It's remembering that. Anyways, thank you so much for hearing me out. It's Thanks. been quite fun. <laughs> it's been great to talk to you, Lucky. I really appreciate you coming in. Hope to be back. Talk again soon. See ya. Yes. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Psych Matters. Feel free to share it with others and keep an eye out for future episodes. Psych Matters is produced by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists.